Welcome to the Southridge Church Podcast. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we want you to stay connected with us. You can find us on sanjose.cc or subscribe to the podcast. Oh, let's put our hands together and worship in this place. So grateful to see each and every one of you. Thank you so much for standing. God bless you. You may be seated. Excited that you are here. If this is your first time at Southridge, I just want to welcome you. My name is Mekai. I'm the pastor here at Southridge Church. We're excited to see you on this Sunday afternoon. Looks like you survived our heat wave that we had this week. So grateful to see you guys. Hopefully you had some air conditioning to contend with the heat. But if not, you survived. You made it. Congratulations. We're glad you're here. On your way in, you should have received a card. It looked like this. This is our Connect card. We'd love for you at any point in our service to take this card and to fill it out at the end of our service. Also, for the rest of us that are regular attenders, there's a card near you or on your seat. You're going to need that at the end of the service. I'm going to tell you exactly what we're going to do with it. So hang on to that card. We're glad you're here. Well, today marks the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And, uh, It's amazing now that there's a whole generation of people who weren't alive during 9-11. That just kind of blows my mind because I remember exactly every detail about that morning. I just remember our phone rang and somebody said, turn on your TV and then hung up. My dad was a pastor at church. One of the church members just called and just said, turn on your TV. And I remember turning on and there was one of the Twin Towers was on fire shortly as I'm watching TV right away you see the second plane fly into the second tower and you're just thinking the awfulness of that moment there's so much uncertainty you didn't know what was going on and then they talked about other planes that were also flying into buildings and then you see a spectacle later on that day that was probably one of the most moving and memorable of the day house and the Senate all emptied and they went to the steps and they linked arms Republican, Democrat, Independence didn't matter who you voted for, who you're for they linked arms and they sang God bless America and they prayed and it was a great moment of solidarity of unity and across political aisles I just remember churches just being open and people would just drive in because they didn't know, would just drive in and go in and pray. Why does it take tragedy to get us to see God like that? Why does it take something truly horrendous for us to finally say, okay, God, you got my attention? I want to start our service in a word of prayer, and I want to pray for our country specifically. I know my calling is not to save America. My calling is to see as many Americans saved as possible. That's my calling. But I am called to pray for our country, as are you. So right now, let's pray for our country. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather. We thank you for the freedoms that were hard fought and hard won. And right now, I have great concern for the country I love. I have great concern for it. The division, the divisiveness, the corruption things that are happening. I can get so frustrated with it, but I'm not about to give up on this great country. And so, Father, I pray for you. Your word tells us if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. God, America needs a healing. May it start with us. 
God, I pray for those that are leading our country. May you fill them with wisdom. May you fill them with a spirit of unity to reach across aisles and to connect for the better. And I pray, Father, that you would restore, raise up churches and leaders in this place. We love you. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you that we can worship openly and freely. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Now, normally I would play a sermon bumper, but I went over my time. So I'm going to cut out the sermon bumper this morning to just kind of reclaim as much time as possible. Take your Bible, if you would, to the book of James, chapter number one. We've kicked off a new series out of this amazing book. It's a short book. It's just five chapters. And James is many scholars and theologians, as well as myself, believe, though it is not explicitly implied, that James is the half-brother of Jesus, that he was, in fact, the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem, and this is him writing the book, and he wrote a book that's five chapters long. This book mirrors his half-brother Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This mirrors it. It's very much the same sermon, uh, just set in a different context. And so the, the author, James is writing, not necessarily to any particular group, uh, and he addressed his letter as kind of an open letter to Christians in general. And he gives over 51 imperatives. They're called to action. They're, they're things that you and I can put into practice because James was a very practical person, and he put these principles, and he expected that we put them into practice. And uh, so much of Christianity, the, the fault that people have with it is that we know so much and we apply so little. It's that if we were just to apply half of what we know, our coworkers would notice a difference, our homes would notice a difference, our neighbors would notice a difference, and by that very fact, much of our world would be different if we would simply apply more of what we know. And so James writes to that end, and so that's kind of the backdrop to this book. And we started in the first couple verses, but then I want to begin in verse number 13 in just a moment. But... I like to reverse engineer problems, especially if I can't solve it. You know what I mean? Like, okay, let's work backwards on this. Let's, let's pull this thing apart and let's see if I can fix it. Uh, yesterday, matter of fact, uh, my wife and I, we had a little problem. And uh, she kindly said to me, she said, I don't need you to fix anything. And I said, but that's my job. I'm a fixer. Just let me fix you, you know? And that didn't go well. It did not go well at all. And she said, I just need you to listen. And I said, okay, I will listen. But it was hard. It was so hard. I don't know why it's hard for 15, 20 minutes to just not say anything. So I had to distract my mind and think heavy thoughts. Football's back. Football's back. You know, you, you try to just, just stay focused as much as you can. And I just, I just want to go to problem solving because I wanted to do something else. I didn't want to be here. I just wanted to fix a problem and go do whatever I wanted to do, which was sit on the couch in an air-conditioned room and watch a little college football. And uh, that was not going to happen, nor did it happen yesterday. I watched no football because I was trying to fix something. When you fix something, you end up creating more problems, as I learned. But then there is a, there's my, my method to fixing problem typically is to reverse engineer the problem, to kind of look at it from a different angle. I want to reverse engineer this message today. I kind of want to start with the problem, and then I want to work backward to the solution. 
And I know that's a little bit odd. It's not very linear. So track with me. I'll do my best if you do your best. I know it's hot and, and a little bit warm, but uh, honestly, it was better than it was on Monday and Tuesday. So we're better. So this is great. But I want to begin by asking a question. I want you to ponder it for a moment. Why does it seem like today we have such low commitment among Christians? You say, I, I don't notice it. Well, think about it for a second. Statistics tell me that um, the average Christian, the good Christian, will attend church 1.6 times a month. That's less than twice a month. That's the good ones. That's the good ones. Um, there was a survey done after COVID among 1,000 churches here in California, 1,000 churches. And they said, is your attendance up post-COVID or down post-COVID? And out of 1,000 churches, 78% said our attendance is down. 78%. That meant that almost 750 churches said our attendance is headed in the decline post-COVID. There was only 14% of churches, and we were a part of that survey that said, no, we're on a growth trend. We're actually growing post-COVID. Only 140 churches. We were a part of that. It's a small little group. And so you see church attendance on decline. They say the average Christian gives, instead of tithing 10%, gives 2% of their income. 2%. Why is commitment on the decline? Why does it seem like there's less service? Why, why do we have this, especially when we are called to be committed? We struggle with commitment. And not just, and I don't even think they do this anymore. Even with a phone plan, you get a phone plan, two-year commitment. We're like, no, I don't want the commitment. I'm not going to sign up for this company if you make me lock in for two years. We struggle with it. We struggle with any type of commitment, with a relationship, with jobs. We struggle with commitment and, and, and simply saying to somebody, yes, I will be there at this date and this time. We struggle with it. And sadly, Christians struggle with commitment. You would think out of one group, we would be committed, but yet we struggle with commitment. And why is that? Well, let me come to the answer in a weird roundabout way. But with your attention on James chapter number one, notice verse number 13, the Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he begat us, brought forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's an interesting passage. I was a little bit intimidated to preach out of this because so much of us, if we've grown up around the church, we know so much of James, and I didn't want to bring something you had already heard before. But out of the six verses we read, there was one verse out of this whole passage that doesn't really fit. It kind of sticks out. Maybe you noticed it. There's a definite flow. Verses 13, 14, and 15 are talking about sin and temptation and what happens when sin and temptation uh, uh, come to fruition and their, their fruit is death. And then you've got the last section we talked about. It's the goodness of God, that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, um, from the God of light with whom is no shadow of turning. So you've got these two. They're, they're, you've, got, you've got death and you've got life. But verse number 16 doesn't really fit, does it? 
Be not deceived, my beloved brethren. Like it doesn't really work in the passage. It doesn't, doesn't connect to the verses before it and doesn't really connect to the verses preceding it or after it. It, it just kind of like, James, what were you doing when you wrote that verse? It, it sticks out. And I hope when you read the Bible that verses like this jump out at you, that you look at it and say, yeah, that, that doesn't really fit. Until I started to look and say, God, this is puzzling and perplexing. Why did you put this verse here? Why is verse number 16 here? And then I realized something. I realized that God put verse 16 there because he needed us to understand that life is filled with contrast. You say, what do you mean contrast? We love contrast. Many of us, when it comes to our clothing choices, we like to have a contrasting color that pops out. For many of us to say, oh, that color makes your eyes look more colorful. Or that color looks good on you, the contrast. Uh, I grew up in a very uh, white home that my wife would tell me, and she would always say, your food is very boring. I was like, what are you talking about my food is boring? She's like, it's very plain. There's no taste to it. I was like, sure there is. We cook rice, then we put salt and butter on it. And she said, don't ever do that. I will cut you. And my wife's Filipino. And so she's like, you do not desecrate the rice like that. That's terrible. And I was like, no, no, no. This is just what I eat. My food is very bland. A lot of starches, not a lot of flavor. And then she introduced me to flavor. She said, have you ever tried sea salt and vinegar chips? I said, that's gross. She said, have you tried it? And I was like, that is delicious. Give me more. I was like, I'm just used to regular Lay's potato chips. What do you mean they got salt and vinegar? That is awesome. And then she said, you need to try spicy food. I said, I hate spicy food. And now I'm like, let's do spicy food. I never used to eat sushi. Now I hate sushi because she said, you need the contrast. I like contrast in our clothing. We like it in our food. Hey, we like it in design. Good design has contrast. You have different angles, different points. Good pictures, good photographers, get contrast. Movies, contrast. Your home has contrast to it. Relationships have contrast. Some of you are the spender. Some of you are the saver. Some are you the introvert. Some are you the extrovert. There's contrast. Everything is about contrast. And see, in this passage, he wants us to notice the contrast between what lust, sin, and death and life and good and God. He wants you to see the contrast. He didn't want you to just flow into the two. He wanted you to just notice it. And he wanted to catch our attention. So verse number 16 is to arrest our attention. It's to get us to just stop and think about what we're reading about. And so he wants us to see that contrast is clear, which is interesting because today in Christianity, contrast is no longer clear. You say, what do you mean? Today, we don't want to look at things as black and white. We want there to be a gray area. We don't want contrast. We want kind of a middle ground. We don't want to have things as right and wrong. We want to have things that are fine and okay and better, but we don't want right and wrong. We don't want to be told that what we're doing is either righteous or it's unrighteous, that it's either sinful or it's either good. We, we don't want to be told that you're either serving God or you're serving the devil. We don't, we don't want that type of contrast. And so we've lost sight that there is contrast in Christianity. 
We've lost that ability to discern it. We've lost the ability to see it. And Satan's really good at helping us to camouflage culture in Christianity. And many of us would say, wait, culture, I don't think culture is bad. No, you're right. There are some things in culture that are not bad. But then there are some things in culture that are horrible. That culture allows that if you and I claim to be Christians, should not allow. Now, I'm going to put a warning label on the front end of this message. I am an equal opportunity offender. This message will offend you. So if you're here and you're saying, man, I don't have the stomach for it. Hey, grab a cup of coffee, hang out in the lobby, act like you didn't listen to it. You're fine because this message will offend you. It may make you, and I'm not kidding, never want to come back. And you say, why would you preach a message like that? Because I'm tired of commitmentless Christians. And the only way we can deal with commitmentless Christians is we understand that God has called us to be a contrast to culture. Because we do not follow culture, we follow kingdom. We have a king, his name is Jesus, that's who we follow. He has a dome, we live under that dome, his dominion, kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live under kingdom not culture, but how many Christians are taking culture and bringing it into the church and then trying to say it's good? Let me illustrate the point. How often have you heard of a politician, movie star, or a friend, or somebody else, they misappropriate culture? Have you ever heard the term? It's becoming more and more popular. You probably have. Misappropriation of culture. I've talked to some people, and nowadays you have to be careful. Uh, myself, as a white individual, would have to be careful how I wear somebody else's. My wife is Filipino. I have to be careful. I don't want to make light of her culture, and I don't want to misappropriate that culture. But Christian, hear me on this. You cannot take culture and misappropriate it and bring it into the church and therefore say it's okay, it's kingdom. No, it's not. That's a misappropriation of culture. We are Christian, not culture. And there needs to be a contrast between the two. But church no longer is that contrast. And Christians today no longer understand the contrast. We no longer want the contrast. And so we would rather find the gray in everything and live in this messy middle. Instead of understanding that scripture is clear. There's a right and there's a wrong. There's a heaven, there's a hell. There's a devil, there's a God. And I need to choose between them. As for you, choose you this day is what Elijah said. And then Joshua even said, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. He understood there's a contrast, but yet today we don't want to live in contrast. Contrast is about distinction, but contrast isn't something new. Contrast started in creation. You go to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first day, he separated the light from the dark. Contrast began in creation. God is all about create contrast. But yet in our lives, is there a contrast between you and culture? That people look at you and they say, you act different, talk different, live different, love different. There's something different about you. And you say, yes, I don't live for culture. I live for kingdom. I live under his dome. He, Jesus, is my king. That's why I'm different. There's a contrast to culture. The Bible even tells us, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. But Christians today have a hard time being separate from culture because we love culture. 
Not everything about culture is wicked and wrong. There are some things that are appropriate about culture. But understand, you and I have to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong in culture and stay away from certain things. Now here's where I'm going to offend you. When you see in Texas they, they want little kids climbing up on a stripper pole at a trans parade, you and I say, that's wrong. And how many Christians today just turn a blind eye to it? We don't understand that culture doesn't always get it right. That culture can be perverted. Culture can be trying to sexualize our children and get them uh, primed and ready for a wicked culture. So we can't always say everything about culture is wrong. Where did they get that? And where did they begin to flaunt that? It started by desensitizing you and I by pushing things through television. You love your show Dancing with the Stars. And now they're allowing trans dancers on there. You say, well, I love this show. It's a desensitization where you and I can no longer say, there's got to be a contrast. God created male and he created female. Contrast. And I don't live under culture's rule. I live under kingdom. That doesn't mean I'm a bigot. I'm homophobic. I'm unloving. I'm critical. I'm judgmental. That's not what it means. It means as Christians, we understand contrast. And today in the church, we no longer want the contrast. We want to blend in and camouflage into culture. And that's not what God called you to be. He said you in Peter, he said you are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. There's supposed to be something different about you. Supposed to be something that stands out. But yet today we are more worried about fitting in than standing out. As a matter of fact, if we get called out, we feel ashamed. The only time you and I should be ashamed for being called out is if we are living in sin and doing sin. Then we should feel ashamed about being called out. But you being called out for living for righteousness and for saying, I'm going to serve God, my friends, stand strong in today's day and age. And I know it's hard. You see, contrast was created in the garden and it continues. God wants you to be separate. God doesn't want you blending into culture. But today, I hear churches make this statement that scares me to no end. It says, I have to be like them to reach them, which is a perversion of 1 Corinthians 9, 19, where the apostle Paul said, I become all things to all men so that by Christ I may reach some. Their intention was good, but the product is bad. You say, what do you mean? Jesus ate with sinners. He didn't sin with sinners. And if you take that culture, that idea of culture that I've got to be like them to reach them, then guess what? I need to go down to skin row. I need to get a vein going and say, hey, I want to reach you guys. So give me that needle and I'll just shoot up with you guys because I'm here to reach you. You brought the kids in. I apologize, but that means I want to reach the prostitutes. That means I got to sleep with all of them to reach them. That will not go over well with my wife at all. I'll be more than sleeping on the couch. But do you see where the argument goes? And you say, Pastor, you're being it too much. You're exaggerating. That heat, I think, got to you. Have an ice water and calm down. No, that's the problem. You don't want there to be a contrast because you're too comfortable in a camouflaged Christian culture. And we are called out of that culture. We are kingdom, not culture. And what's happening nowadays is churches are afraid to be all about the kingdom. That we honor King Jesus and what King Jesus calls us to. That's what we live for. And it's because of a dulling of discernment. You and I don't know how to discern right from wrong anymore. Good from evil. We don't know how to discern what is God and what is the devil. You don't have eyes of discernment. So you plop your kid down. You give them social media. You don't think they're going to be corrupted by it. 
You hand your kid an electronic device with no filters? Do you know all the top corporate CEOs that founded these social media companies don't want their children on them? And those are founders. And yet Christian community is just like, here you go. I don't have time to actually be a dad. I, can't, I don't got time to be present in your life because I got football. I got culture. And we're not teaching our children. We're not teaching the next generation that there are some things we need to stay away from. And this right here could become a gate, a pipeline of sewer. My wife lived in the Philippines and when it floods there, their plumbing doesn't work like our plumbing. When it floods there, everything backs right up into the house, two feet deep of your sewage. Filthy, nasty, disgusting, vile bacteria, disease, everything that you could imagine. You think, just blow the house up and build a new one. I don't want to move back in there. How many of us have a pipeline of filth right into our home and we just hand it to our children, our vulnerable children whose minds are young and impressionable and we don't think that they're going to get something weird and wacky and psycho and devilish on there? Are you kidding me? You say, well, I don't know what they're listening to. They got their headphones on. You should know what they're listening to. You say, I don't know what they're watching. They just download the apps and I don't know what they're into. You should. You're the parent. Did COVID teach us nothing that even school's not safe anymore? You need to know what your teacher's telling them. One time early on in the church, I had a good, a good leader come to me, a good Christian brother. And he told me, he said, hey, I want to check the finances of the church out. I said, sure. We have a bookkeeper. And I pulled out all the paper. And I was so proud because I was like, look at our books. And he said, can you tell me about your books? I said, no, I have a bookkeeper. She tells me everything's okay. And I believe her. He said, that's not how you run a business. I said, it's not a business church. He said, yeah, but you should run it better than a business because it's God's house. So you should know every line item. You should know everything, every detail, every penny. You need to know everything. And I said, I think you're right. And ever since then, he'll ask me a question. I'll say, I know what that was spent on. I know what that was spent. I know how much every little piece of equipment costs. I know every little bit because it's my job. I'm in charge of it. I know what my children watch. I know what my children eat. I know what they're listening to. I know who their friends are. I know that they're not allowed to go spend the night at anybody's house. That's my responsibility. They're in my kingdom for this moment. And you and I are doing sometimes a poor job just sending our children off into culture unprotected not ready for it. And Satan wants to corrupt them when they're young. So we need to go back and say, how's my discernment? Disney's not your friend. They came out with Disney Day. And my kid said, Dad, we want to watch the new movie. I said, okay, you know what that means. Now I have to screen it before they watch it. I don't know what they're going to push. I don't know what they're going to slide, what little subtle things. You know, they used to throw little dirty jokes in so the parents could kind of stay with the movie. And we used to think, well, it's something for the parents. But then you notice the kids are getting it. They're, they're ears. They're watching it. What's sad is Christians, we have no discernment today. We can't tell right from wrong, up from down, what is good and what is bad. Our discernment is broken. And you say, what is the big deal? What is the big deal? We, 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 we don't know how to, how to contrast. No, we're supposed to be different. But the problem is we make these, these mistakes. And here's what Christians do. We say, well, it's too close to call. You ever heard that? We're in a, a political season. It's supercharged. 
I've heard that statement made more now than any other statement. Oh, this race is tight. It's too close to call. We will keep you updated. Stay tuned, and we will update you before midnight to see when the polls close or the election booths close, and then we will update you. But it is neck and neck. It's just too close to call. You know what Christians are doing? That's how we're justifying things that we want to do that we know are wrong. Oh, it's just too close to call. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong. Should I smoke weed? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say I shouldn't smoke weed. As a matter of fact, I think there's even one verse that says, Sarah lighted off her candle. See, smoking's there. Yeah. Hey, she was on a camel. She lighted off of it. All right, so that's, there we go. Smoking's in the Bible. <laughs> the things that we try to put into Scripture, the things we try to say, we have no discernment. So what we do is we say, well, it's just too close to call. I'm going to get in your business for a moment. Here's another one. And I get it. It's hard to be a single Christian nowadays. The debate among single Christians should be they be sleeping around is one that's going on. And they say, well, I go to church. I love God, but it should be fine. What's the big deal? We're just sleeping around. Hebrew says the marriage bed is undefiled and holy before God, but adulterers, whoremongers, God will judge. God is saying, hey, no, you, you want to enjoy the marriage bed. Guess what? Then get married. Part of the problem why so few couples get married and stay committed in a relationship is because there's no incentive to stay in a relationship. There's nothing there. Instead, we look at intimacy as something to pass the time instead of it seeing it as the glue that says, hey, this is what helps our marriage relationship. Because nobody else can satisfy this desire but you. You're the only person. My wife, your husband. That's the only person that's supposed to satisfy that desire. But culture says we got a better way. And divorce now is 50-50. Is culture working? Yes or no? The answer is obviously no. I know it's hot. You say, oh man, that heat got to him. No, 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 no. Somebody was praying for me. As a matter of fact, somebody came up to me after the service and said, I was praying for you this morning. So it's their fault if I'm like this. They prayed for it. <laughs> So understand, when it comes to culture, we don't go with the tide of culture because culture is going to go like a river wherever it's easiest. We're about the kingdom and we do what God calls us to. So don't give in to these arguments, oh, it's too close to call. The Bible tells us this in Luke 6. It says, the salt has lost its savor. Wherewith shall be salted is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. We're no longer even low-sodium Christians. We have no salt. Scripture says, you're good for nothing. Think about that for a second. Salt that was good for nothing. You know what they did with salt that had lost its saltiness? Like when we get snow in the Midwest, you put salt on the sidewalk so you don't slip. They're saying that that salt is so bad, there's nothing you can do with it. You just got to get rid of it somewhere. How sad of an indictment on Christians. That we are so useless to the kingdom of God. God's like, I don't know what to do with you. You have no savor. There's no saltiness left in you. And is that why much of the church is impotent with the power of God? Is that why we have so much addiction to uh, 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 substances? Is that why we need the antidepressants? Is that why we have to have different drinks to get to sleep? Is that why we have to be with so many partners? Is that why we have to put ourselves out there on social media? Because we do not know how to be satisfied in a loving relationship with God and receive everything we need from Jesus? Is that why we have to find something else to find some other functional savior because we can't function without some help of some drug, help of some sleeping aid, help of some antidepressant? I'm not against antidepressants, but understand some of it is actually spiritual warfare. 
that if you would deal with some of these sin issues, you may find that maybe I don't need all the medication. I'm not against medication. I'm not against psychologists. But sometimes we just need to follow God's word and God's word will help me get right the things that I need to get right. But there's no longer a contrast in the church. If you're not saved and this is this place, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the ones that you know you're saved. That's who I'm talking to. We are called to reach this world. And if this world is not being changed, it's not the guy in the White House fault, it's ours. Because every politician is gonna say the same thing. I promise you this, I promise you that, I promise this. Four years later, elect me again and I'll promise this and that, what I promised you last time. So you gotta elect me again so I can really get it done. They're gonna do the same thing. So it's up to you and I to say, you know what, I'm gonna make my area better. I'm gonna take care of my stuff. I'm not gonna worry about what they say. I'm gonna do what I'm called to do. So it starts with contrast, but Christians no longer how to discern, discern contrast. You see, the contrast is no longer clear to Christians. But my friend, it's clear to me. It's clear to me. I had one man come to our church after the service, the first service. He came to me. He said, yeah, I went to one church, and they, they were teaching that the Old Testament's irrelevant. I said, did you stay or did you leave? He said, oh, I left in a hot minute. I said, yeah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, and for correction and instruction and righteousness. All scripture means all, not just the parts we like. But yet we now live in a culture that says, just pick and choose. Just cherry pick what you want. I need it all. All of it's good. All of it is going to correct me. I need this word. Whether I agree with it, whether I like it, I need it in my life. So first of all, the contrast is clear. Secondly, running out of time. You and I, the reason we struggle with commitment and the reason we struggle with contrast, and we could talk about contrast so we're black and blue in the face, you're not going to change until you are the second point, convinced of the contrast. You need to be convinced. But I'm not going to do it through persuasive arguments. I'm not going to do it because... I have some funny joke, inspiring story. The Holy Spirit needs to speak to you and convince you. And that's the only one who can do it. Because I know how some of you may feel about abortion. You're pro, you're anti-abortion. You're pro-LGBTQ, you're anti-LGBTQ. You're all over the place. But what I need you to do, and I can't change you, and I'm not here to change you. I'm here to say, if God is speaking to you, go with God. If God is telling you from his word what is right and what is wrong, then you say, this is what God told me. I don't have to be mean-spirited about it. I don't have to be uh, rude about it. But I go with what God calls me to do. And I got to be convinced of this thing. And sadly, many Christians are no longer convinced about things. Your faith is flaky at best. You say, how do you know it's flaky? Your kid gets, you enroll your kid in Little League or some football activity. And I don't see you in church. I would have one guy, he would tell me every fall, he would say, hey, pastor, it's football season. You know what that means? I'll see you in four months. I said, how pathetic. That's terrible. Your God is football. Not Jesus who bled and died for you. What a slap in the face. What a slap in the face. And he laughed. <laughs> I'll see you after football season. 
My friend, I don't know if you're saved. I don't know if I'll see you in heaven, let alone see you in four months. Because where is your love? Where is your affection? You see, there is a hell that is hot and a heaven that is sweet. And if the Christians can't tell the difference and you're not even convinced of the difference, how are we supposed to go and influence the culture? You see, the culture is far better influencing the church than the church is influencing culture. We once had in the 1920s a prohibition. How many study the prohibition in your history class? Anybody? I don't even know if they teach it. The prohibition was alcohol was illegal. You say, man, I'm so glad I was not alive in the prohibition. Look, it's not a sin to drink. It's not. Sin to get drunk, but it's not a sin to drink. But here, let me listen to this little preacher for a second. I don't drink. And you know why? Not because it's wrong. I don't need it in my life. What if there just comes a point where you just say, certain things in my life I just don't need. I don't need to watch that movie. I don't need to go to that party. I don't need to go to that place. I don't need to be around it. I want to be a contrast from culture. When are we going to get to the point where we just say, hey, God, what do you want me to have? I want to be convinced of what you want in my life. I'm convinced of the contrast. But sadly, Christians no longer want to be convinced. So we'll go to churches that allow us to be comfortable in our complacency. And those churches fill up fast. But here's the thing. I didn't start this church for numbers. Don't, don't get mad at me, but if you stay or go, I'm going to be faithful to my calling. I'm called to preach this book the best I know how, what the Holy Spirit guides me to. And it's okay every once in a while when you come to church and it's not happy, clappy, rainbow and butterflies. It's okay that you come to church sometimes. Like when I go to the gym and when I'm at the gym, it's game time. It's put the weight on. I'm not here to laugh. I'm not here to joke. I'm not here to take pictures of me trying to flex in the mirror, of me trying to prop up some muscle so I can put it on Instagram. I'm here to do the work. When's the last time you came to church where you said, I'm here to hear from God. I'm not here to mess around. I'm not here for your coffee. I'm not here for the fellowship. I am not here to see a friend. I am here to hear from God. And I want God to speak to me. I want him to convict me. I want him to transform me. Because I need help from heaven. Because I don't want my friends to die and go to hell. And I want there to be a hope that I have. And this Bible tells me what is right. And how to stay right. And how to keep it right. In a world that is telling me there's a fast track. And that fast track is a fast track to hell. And I don't want that for me. I don't want it for my children. I don't want it for my grandchildren. I don't want it for my coworkers. I don't want it for my neighbors so I'm going to tell people about Jesus and I'm going to live different so when they look at me they don't see there's a person that's better than me they say look at that person there's something different about them tell me about that difference your marriage is working I know you and your wife aren't perfect I know I hear you argue and fight and trust me my neighbors if you're my neighbor you will hear me argue and fight with my wife because for us fighting is a pastime when we're bored we just get into it and so we get loud and uh, not physical just loud I'm German she's Filipino so I'm stubborn Germans we try to take over the world Twice failed, but we tried. And so I just got that stubbornness in me. And so guess what? But people could still come over and I'll say, guess what? I'm not perfect, but I love people and I want them to know Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to save their sins. And that's what we're called to. But a church that looks like culture will never reach a lost world. My friend, there are people around you that are looking for something different. They're hungry for something different.
And instead, what they look at is a bunch of Christians that look exactly like everybody else. I'm not against churches that have the smoke, that have the lights, that have the nightclub atmosphere. But let me tell you why they have the nightclub atmosphere. They want to make you comfortable because they know you just spent last night at the nightclub and they want to make you feel right at home. Wait a minute. I don't need to feel at home. I need to feel uncomfortable. When I go to the gym, I don't tell my trainer, hey, just give me one stomach crunch. Just give me one push-up and one pull-up and make sure you got snacks. I want pizza. I want nachos. I want donuts at the gym because I need to be comfortable at my gym. Are you kidding me? But yet we come to church and we say, hey, I want good coffee and I want the temperature just right and I want the preacher to preach something happy and clappy and make me feel good and inspire me. Go to a Tony Robbins conference then if you want to be inspired and uplifted. Don't come to church and expect me that every time I've got to inspire you to actually love your spouse, just love them with everything you've got and serve them and love your neighbor as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. And if we do that, your neighbor would say there's something different. Take me to your church because you're a different kind of person and your children are different kind of children. They respect and honor their parents because that's what we're going to teach your children over in Rich Kids to honor and respect their parents. But in today's culture where every television program, the dad is the butt of all jokes. I'm tired of it. I refuse to watch it. I refuse my kids to let them see it. I shut that trash off, not because I'm insecure, not because I've got some complex, but because they need to know that I'm a man of God, and as best as I can, I will live and act and behave myself respectfully as a man of God in my home. I open the door for my wife. I respect my wife. I open the door for my daughter. My daughter is going to be treated like a lady, like a woman, so when some floozy, creepy, handsy boyfriend shows up, I'll be cleaning my shotgun and say, hey, go go ahead and try it, my friend. Try to touch my daughter. You will not. I want her to know that there's got to be a man that can actually respect me and take care of me and have a job and work hard and show up and put in the long hours but yet we got homes where the dads are like hey let's be Homer Simpson are you kidding me have you lost your ever loving mind Homer Simpson is a bad caricature of today's fathers and we have adopted it we bought it hook line and sinker don't watch that trash don't put that trash in your home stop pumping in the sewage the devil's trying to put in the culture into your home and it's time that you say no devil i rebuke it i want it out i want it gone and my home is going to be a different type of home you don't need tv i went 10 years without any tv and i turned out just fine your kids will survive you can read books you can play board games you can Go outside. You can get some fresh air. You can go hike. You can play basketball and football and baseball. Buy a horse. I bought a horse to get outside, to get my kids outside. There's all kinds of things you can do. You don't need to say family time is sit in front of a TV where we don't talk, don't look at each other, and we just stare at this thing, eyes glazed over, as they pump in their indoctrination of everything that culture says we should be doing. How about you say, no, let's do something different. And all the neighborhood kids will be saying, can we go over to their house? They play board games. Their dad laughs and talks with them. Their dad wrestles on the floor with their boys. Their dad teaches their boys how to be masculine men not men that are down in dirty dogs that just want to grope and and do nasty filthy stuff but they're men of integrity and their dad makes sure the family's ready to church make sure he takes them there and Sunday afternoons they go and eat lunch as a family and he's home by a certain time he doesn't need his time with the boys at the bar instead he wants to be home with his family loving and serving and guiding and he tucks his children in at night and he prays with them and he tells them I love you and I'm proud of you and he reads scriptures over them but today 
day in the average family, dads can't be too busy or bothered because we've got to watch House of Dragons. God forbid that you need to watch the filth. God forbid that you've got to put TV shows that you've got to binge watch instead of spending time praying over your children, asking God to protect them because Satan's after your children. And it comes time where the church says, there's going to be a contrast in the house of God. There's going to be a contrast here. I go to a different type of church. I go to a different type of place where the Bible is read, where the preaching is hot, where the people love God, where there's a different spirit there. It's the spirit of Joshua and Caleb. They were men of a different spirit. And God was allowing them out of the two, out of that first generation that still got to go in the promised land. Why have we lost that different spirit? It's because we won't contrast and we are no longer convinced that we need to contrast. Are you hearing me? It's okay. You don't have to come back. I don't need the applause. I didn't start this church for your applause. I don't need your money. I sold my house and gave it to the church. There's nothing I want from you. There's nothing I need from you. I gave my life to God and everything with it. I need nothing. You show up, you don't show up. I will be right here preaching this old book until I'm black and blue in the face. And I'll be loving my sweet wife and taking care of my sweet children and raising them up to love and serve God. You do what you want to. Culture is failing you. So you can serve that God if you want to. And I'll be right here preaching and teaching this old book that teaches us how to get right, stay right, and keep it right. That's what we're called to here. And I'm way off my notes. Oh, I'm fired up in this place. Are you convinced of the truth? The Apostle Paul was convinced of the truth. We no longer are convinced of the truth anymore. You know, he contrasted it with the world. He said it's going to end up death. And then he says, but every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. That word comes down I grew up under the King James Bible. I don't necessarily think it's got to be the version, but that's the Bible I still use, the old King James. I memorized everything, and so it's just easier for me. But in this Bible, when I read James chapter number one, and when I get to verse number 17, it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it says the word cometh down. And I kind of like that old English word cometh down. Because what it actually means is it's a constant giving. That God is so good, he's constantly giving gifts. It's this idea of perpetual. That God is always giving you gifts. That every good and perfect gift comes from above. That God is saying, I'm going to constantly give you gifts. That's how good our God is. So contrast that with sin, which leads to death. And God says, I'm giving you gifts. They're good and they're perfect gifts. And it doesn't even have to be your birthday or Christmas to get the gift. God says, I'm always giving you gifts. You have a car in your driveway. You have a refrigerator filled with food. That's a gift. You have air in your lungs. That's a gift. You have legs that work. That's a gift. You have freedoms here. That's a gift. Don't take it, any of it for granted because all of it is a gift from God. Because the gift is good because it's from the giver. And it is an uh, image of how good our God is. You've heard the phrase, it's not the gift that counts, but the thought. God doesn't like that. He said, oh no, it's all about the gift, not the thought. So God gives gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Are you convinced though that every good gift, everything comes from God? Sadly, we are not convinced. Instead, we're accepting other offers. You say, what do you mean accepting other offers? Hey, 
Where are the good times at? I'll go after that. Whoever gives me a good time, I'll follow them. We need to stop accepting offers. We need to say, God, what do you want for me? God wants our undivided attention, but where's the church? We can't sit through anything longer than an hour without getting distracted on our phones. Your phone is buzzing a hole out of your pocket and you can't even ignore it for an hour. You're in the presence of God and we can't not look at the check the sports. Your, your notifications are buzzing a hole out of your pocket from a bunch of people you don't know. It's all bots giving you hearts and likes and smiley faces. A bunch of bots and you're in the presence of God and we can't give him any attention. God's like, you can't give me undivided attention. It's not about me. We've lost the reverence and respect from God. And you wonder what happened to it? We're the example. The church of God is the example. People today don't want preaching that goes any longer than 45 and a half minutes. I grew up in churches that it didn't get done till it was done. And if it took two hours, it took two hours. And today I cut out this video. I'm cutting out the closing song. But the church I grew up, oh, you didn't cut nothing out. You in that seat till we done. And if you leave, you better give a good tithe as a reason you leaving. Some of you are like, oh man, no, you're tied today. This mess is 2% for sure is what you getting. Last point. Once I'm convinced, then I'll be fully committed. I started with the question, why aren't we fully committed? It's because we don't contrast anything anymore. But we're not convinced that we need to be, have a contrast. And if you're not convinced that there needs to be a contrast, then you will never be committed but here's what I'll tell you this morning. I don't want you to change or do anything for Micaiah Ermer. If the Holy Spirit of God is not at work here, then he is not at work. He's the only one that can change it. That's why I don't want any mood music up here. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm working some emotion. If God's speaking, God's speaking. I can't control him. The wind blows where it listeth. The Spirit moves where he wants to but I can put up a sail and try to catch the wind of the Spirit. I can say, God, my heart is open and I'm thirsty for a touch of you, God. For a drink from those rivers of life, God, I need something in my life. I need something that cures, something that helps, something that heals. I need it from you, God. But not until you are convinced of the truth will you truly be committed to that truth. But sadly, today, we have no more commitment. The famous missionary, David Livingston, went to Africa, and he blazed trails taking the gospel all over Africa. Africa is still touched with the presence of David Livingston. The locals took David Livingston's body, and it was requested to be buried where kings and queens, because David Livingston was knighted for his exploration. And they requested his body to be buried in the chapel with kings and queens. But the people that he gave his life for, that he labored for, they took his body and they cut out his heart. And they buried his heart in Africa. Because they said this is where his heart was. But when David Livingston was alive, another missionary group said, we want to come to Africa. Are there any good roads to reach you? David Livingston's reply was this. 
if you will only come if there are good roads, I do not want you to come. I need trailblazers. Today in Christendom, we do not need people who need the easy road. We need people that say, I will blaze a trail. Maybe your line is not a lineage that your dad was a pastor and you grew up in church. Maybe your dad, you never knew his name. Maybe there's addicts in your family. Maybe that line is not a good, godly Christian line. Maybe for you, you will start it. And maybe you're going to make the decision to say, I'm the trailblazer in my house. We never had family devotions. It starts with me. We never went to church every Sunday. It starts with me. We never went to Bible study during the week. It starts with me. We never used to give and serve. It'll start with me. I will blaze this trail. But sadly, we live in a Christian culture that says, no, 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 no. We make it easy. We got good donuts and coffee. Come hang out here. We're called to a different lifestyle. You know, we don't know our Christian history. Much of our Christians were martyred for what we hold today. John Huss, one of the great reformers, he said, that which I have preached with my lips, I seal with my blood, as he was burned at the stake. Another man by the name of Hugh Latimer was also preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was going against the popular teaching of the day. And they said, recant or we're going to burn you at the stake. He and his friend uh, Ridley, as they were being led to the stake and they would not recant, Hugh Latimer said this to Risley. He said, today, play yourself the man because today we shall light a fire in England the lights of which will never go out. The light of the gospel has not gone out, my friend, but that light is flickering in the States. Church attendance on the decline. 80% of Christians, when they turn 18, no longer want to go to church. They don't got time for it. Because they got to their college and their college told them that God is a myth. I was talking to somebody, you know, the new movie Thor, Love and Thunder, is total indoctrination that there are no deities. You watch a movie and say, I'm here just for the pure entertainment aspect. Oh, the devil has a message. We used to play records. Remember old records? I think they still sound good, the old vinyls. But there were some vinyls you could spin it backwards and it would play a hidden message. And it was oftentimes a demonic message. You think that was an accident? You think the devil's stopped doing that? Oh, I think he's hiding his message for our youth. All gods must die. What do you think he's trying to teach our children? Atheism. That nobody saved you but you, so you have to save yourself. My friend, if it is hot in this room, you better get saved. Because you ain't ready for what's after this life. That is not a threat. That is with all the love in my heart. Church, the time of decision has come. Are we going to be commitmentless? Or will we... Join the great throngs of those who have gone before us, who sit in the bandstands of heaven, who are that cloud of witnesses that are watching and witnessing, that are continuing to encourage you and I to run the race that is set before us. But instead of run, we're calling for an Uber or a Lime scooter. I don't want to run and work. Some of us have a hard time when we just get asked to volunteer for something. I've read a scripture this week. 
if you ran with the footmen and they wearied you, how are you going to contend with the horses? You pray for God to do big things, and you won't even do the little things as if they're big things. Because if you'll do the little things as if they're big things, God will do the big things as if they're little things. But it starts with us. Can we stand heads bowed and eyes closed? Heavenly Father, Lord, I need you. I pray your help on our church family. God, we are so enamored in love with culture. It's sucking up this next generation. God, I pray for parents that work so hard and they work so long. They put their kids in private school. They put their kids in the best programs. All the while, there's these little gates that the devil can get in. Help us to be vigilant. Help us not to give up on this next generation. I pray that husbands would take the leadership. Pray that wives would encourage their husbands to be men of God, men of integrity, men of character. We live in a culture in a day and age where it just seems like everything's turned upside down. Oh God, would you once again light a fire in our hearts? Would you once again give us courage to be in contrast to the culture? Father, help us. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're all staying with heads bowed and eyes closed. Once again, I said I didn't want the band. I didn't want any of it. I'm concerned for my church family. I know some of you are guests and you're new here. Maybe you come back next Sunday. Maybe I'll have more jokes. Maybe next Sunday I won't be so worked up. But I'm seeing what's happening. And it breaks my heart. I look at our city, city I'm called to. I run a house on Communication Hill and I get to look over the city and my heart breaks for it. I can see all the lights from the police vehicles and ambulances. I can see all the devastation. We're in the, one of the wealthiest cities in the world and look at us. What has it gotten us? Rising crime, all kinds of problems. We need a savior and his name is King Jesus. We need to get back to it. And it starts with us. Can I pray for you? Would you slip up your hand? May I pray for you? Is that you? You say, Pastor, pray for me. Anybody like that? Oh, God bless you. God bless you. I see those hands. Oh, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to carry you in my heart this week. Oh, amen. God bless you. I'm praying for you. Put your hands down. Let's go to prayer one more time. Father God, the church of God is listing and lilting like a ship about to go under. We are almost shipwrecked on the rocks of culture. But your word tells me that there is an anchor that's steadfast and sure. God, you will help us. But we're enamored by culture. We're in love with culture. We love what it has. We love what it says. We want its music. We want its movies. We want its style. We're allured by it. God, help us to get our eyes fixed on heaven and never look back. These people, these wonderful people have raised their hand to God help them, strengthen them. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated just for a moment? Ushers, I'm gonna invite you.
Thank you again for spending time with us today, and a special thanks to those who give generously to Southridge Church. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about Southridge, you can follow us on social media at Southridge Now. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with a friend or even take a screenshot and share it on your social story. Make sure you tag Southridge Church and let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.